of course, the one um, very large terrorist attack that happened was in 85, which was Air India. Hi, welcome to Age Free Woman. This is Angela Seaborn. This is a podcast where I debunk age stereotypes and interview women who are living proof that these age stereotypes are pure bullshit, which only keep us down and prevent us from thriving. I talk to career-focused women, to homemakers, to fashion models, entrepreneurs, and more. The common denominator for all of the guests that I interview on my show is age is not their cage. All right, I am very excited to introduce our guest today. And she is high up there in the Canadian intelligence world at CSIS or Canadian Security Intelligence Services. Her career began there almost 30 years ago when she started off as an intelligence officer. Over the years, she has proven herself to be anything but unremarkable in her remarkable career, as she has held, if not the highest, some of the highest positions in the organization. Her current title is Director General of the Intelligence Assessment Branch, and before this, Chief of Staff and Special Advisor to the National Security Agency in Canada's Privy Council Office, which, by the way, is a pretty big deal. So without further ado, let's get on with this interview. Please welcome Sherry Henderson. My first question to Sherry was, how is CSIS coping with COVID-19? That's a, it's a good question because we can't work from home, of course. Our, our work has to be done within a top-secret environment. So we automatically um, were declared critical. And so we had to go to work. But because of COVID, we had to make sure that it was the essential staff that went in and then dropped the numbers down, way down. So we had limited numbers in the building and we were trying to find a lot of work for people who were working outside. So because I run our assessment branch, a lot of our employees do a lot of research online and they can do that sort of work. And so that could be done outside. Any human resources work could be done outside, but any of the stuff that is required in a top secret environment, we could not do. So we would come in and we were being very, very flexible in our schedule. You know, traditionally you work, the policy was 7.30 to 5.30 within those hours. That doesn't exist anymore. It's like a 24 seven um, work with around your schedule. We gotta, we have to make sure that we um, respect social distancing and they up the cleaning and they have hand sanitizers everywhere. 
they went and measured all the offices to see how many people could actually fit in an office safely. But to keep the work going, we had to be in there. So I was, I never stayed home. I, I tried to do a rotation out just to show my staff, yes, because people wanted to come to work. People don't want to stay home. <laughs> They're very committed to their work, right? And so I had to show my staff, yes, that I will rotate out as well. Um, and we would do a two week on, uh, one week working from home or trying to work from home, but um, very tough to work from home when everything you need is is on a secret system. And it didn't last very long. I only worked from home, tried to twice, and then ended up having to be in the office anyways. But uh, it was very, very busy. But I will tell you that you certainly focus on priorities. <laughs> I bet. All the noise goes away when you just get your focus on your priorities and get that done. So, okay. So then, on a bigger scale, would you say in some way COVID has helped to helped ceases to streamline um, uh, the priorities, as you say, and um, like get rid of some of the fluff, so to speak, from an That's operational and an administrative sense. So that's what we're looking at right now because it became very apparent that there's a lot of stuff that you don't need to do. There's a lot of stuff we do either because it's a way it's always been done or just because we have a, a bureaucratic processes that get set in place and build up over time. And so I would say maybe that is a bit of a silver lining that we really learn, okay, we don't need to do this. Let's be short, quick. We need to get the assessments out fast to government and what's a quick way of doing that. It's almost, I'm sure you've heard of the lean process but it's like a forced lean process. <laughs> so it worked, it, you know, and, and we're still, but we're still going through that. So we're still that, you know, because some people come back um, and they like, they think it's business as usual. Or what I found, I will say, what I found more difficult was because I'd been there from when we shut down March 18th or 16th, I was there the whole time and I had a core group of people who were there the whole time. But then when we started to bring people back, people are coming back really energized because they've been at home and they're they want to get really engaged but we're tired <laughs> we've been there for six months and we're like okay slow down i'm i'm so glad that you are so engaged and want to jump back into it but you have to recognize that we're tired now so uh, i was forcing my staff to take holidays and and make sure that they recharged as we come back into it but i'm also asking everybody take a really close look at what you do and what you need to do and figure out what we can do without. And then we'll, and then we'll not push back, but fire. I, I say, I don't want to tell people I'm pushing back on stuff, but it's finding a balance with, because everybody's job is very important and everybody's job is important to them. And there's a reason we do it. It's just finding that balance that lets us make sure we can get everything done that we need to do, but without all that extraneous uh, noise. If that makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It does make sense, and I because especially with the work that your you know with CSIS does, it's like it's there's a lot of stress, and it's very it's a time where everybody can try to maybe not top management necessarily, but it, you become more aware. But you can it's a time where you can really say, okay, this is so vital to um, the success of our our country and our agents, our agency subsequently, our country to realize that we need to have this, some kind of a balance. It may not be the same as the average person, but we now know like burnout is just burnout and Absolutely. you can make a lot of mistakes when you're, when you burn out. And in this Absolutely. field that you're in, it's like, 
you can't afford to make mistakes because the whole world finds out about it and you know it's and there's huge repercussions yes yes mm -hmm. that we uh, as much as we like to say that we uh, are a risk tolerant society um if if there was a terrorist attack we are not a risk tolerant society right uh it's interesting because we were we were created in 1984 um and it was based on what we call the McDonald Commission. And when I read the McDonald Commission, which is a very heavy tome, <laughs> um, he does say at one point, you know, we need to manage and monitor the security agencies, which of course we do, we're a democratic society. But he also says in there, what we need to do is be able to be risk tolerant. So we need to accept that if we're not gonna have a completely intrusive hands-off intelligence service, then we also have to accept that there's going to be an element of risk with that. Um, and that's true, but really at the end of the day, um, no, but there is no risk tolerance. We can't, we can't risk our national security. So it does put a lot of pressure and onus on the, on all of the officers and, and well, everybody that works, because everybody who works in the building contributes to the national security environment. So yeah, I imagine that would be hard on the officers that work there and yourself, that, that whole, just even the, just the word risk tolerance, it sounds, it could sound almost like, okay, we're tolerant of it, uh, right? But, but, um, but at the same time, I, I, I get it. It's like you have to you understand that this is not a perfect utopia or else we wouldn't need ceases. And exactly. secondly, it's like you can't, hit a home run every time. It's just not the way the world works. It's it's like, it's not possible. You're right. right? You can basically mitigate risk. And to me, that would be more of the risk tolerance. Okay, we can mitigate to this, to this degree, but, you know, so we didn't allow it to get huge, but we mitigated the risk. And, and in theory, we've saved, you know, millions of lives or whatever it may be. Right. Yes. No, that's very, that's a very good point. It's that it's the mitigation piece. What mm. can we accept to manage a situation and what is just not acceptable? Um, and so, the, and, you know, we have a, our act was created in 1984. So 1984, the world was a very different place. Um, we didn't have uh, the internet, right? We didn't have anything like that. Um, people didn't travel as much as they do now. Uh, it was just very, very different. And our act was good for the time, but um, we've been going through various, well, there was just a C-59 was just passed, which gives us, you know, is starting to bring our act up into the, into today's time. And that's where the government needs to decide what actually they, how they actually want us to, to look. Yes, thank you. So the first question I had was like, how did you end up working in national security? I mean, was this something you always wanted to do? I think that's a that's an interesting question. I have to go back. You know, it's been 30 years almost now. And um, I think it was always something I wanted to do was to serve the Canadian government my and the Canadian people. My original plan had been to apply for foreign affairs. Um, because at the time, nobody really knew anything about 
the service. When If you wanted to get into the security service, you had to go through the RCMP. And I had never had any interest in being an RCMP officer. They do a fabulously important job, but that was not something that intrigued me. But uh, the service always did. And so it was just, it was really good luck. Sometimes I think, you know, things happen for a reason. And I had just moved back to Vancouver and was starting to look for a job. And uh, at that point, the service was actually launching a big national recruitment campaign. They were only uh, about five years old. It was in 1989. And they were so young. Uh, and they had originally had just, you know, RCMP officers coming in and they wanted to change their entire way of recruitment. And they wanted to bring in people who were not interrogators, but were people who could talk to anybody. And so they started to recruit looking for people in the social sciences. And I had a degree, my undergrad degree in economics. And so there's a social science for you. And uh, I thought, you know what? I think that would be a fascinating job. I really didn't know much about it. Uh, the ad just sort of said, you know, if you're interested in national security and serving Canadians. And and so I applied um, and went. It took a two, two years to get into the organization at that point. But, uh, you know, so I always sort of think maybe I was I was destined. I used to read as a kid, Nancy Drew and uh, and uh, watch Get Well Smart. Remember <laughs> Get Well Smart as a kid? In I do. 99, absolutely. <laughs> 99. I love 99. Yeah. So I always want to be age of 99. So there you go. <laughs> Sherry, prior to working in intelligence, what beliefs did you hold that were confirmed and or, de or debunked when you started in the field? Hmm. Uh, I think at the, back at, at that point, the, of course, the one, um, very large terrorist attack that happened was in 85, which was Air India. So I was aware um, to a certain extent of the engagement of the service in, in on that, that investigation and the fact that um, so many Canadian lives were lost. I mean, in fact, Air India was the largest single um, incident terrorist attack that caused the loss of life prior to 9-11. It was, it was huge. Wow. And I don't think... Yeah, I don't think most Canadians I, realize that. No, I, I, yeah. I, that certainly changes how you look at that, right? It does, doesn't it? And there were, does. and they were Canadians, right? They were Canadians, wow. and I think, I think if Canada, if it had been Air Canada and not Air India, you would have seen a different perspective within Canada. I don't think the yeah. average Canadian didn't realize this. It, it, it was a huge tragedy. And so I think, and I was actually living in, um, not in Vancouver at the time it happened, in BC, but I was living in uh, Vancouver as a lot of the, still the investigation and the follow-up and everything was going on. And so it was, it was a fascinating time and that, uh, and that twigged me into the whole national security um, field. I also was, I, I know, you know, when we get, went through the interviews, it was a little bit opaque. <laughs> you knew uh, kind of what you did and, and you got really read up on current events. And, and, uh, and I went down to the live Vancouver Public Library at that point to find out if there was any literature on the service. And all they had at that point was the act and the very first annual report. That's it. Now look at what's out there, right? But then they had nothing. So it was a bit of a, a leap of faith. But I had worked in public insurance at that time too. 
And in public insurance, I did have to run the odd small investigation, nothing like what we do. It was a national security investigations, but investigations in regards to insurance fraud. So at least I had a little bit of an understanding of the slow and meticulous process. Because I think when you think about national security and think about national security investigations, we all revert back to TV and what we see on TV. And it's never like that. And we know in our heart, it's not like that, but you still think, oh, it's all that sexy, <laughs> sexy stuff. But you know, it's a lot of um, groundbreaking, very patient work. I also um, got a, a much greater appreciation for the rule of law and the fact of how important the, the rule of law is within national security investigations. Uh, it all reverts back to if we're breaking the law, we're no better than the people that we're trying to catch, right? Uh, we're trying to protect democracy, not abuse it. And so, you know, it was a, it was, that was very eye-opening uh, for me um, when I first uh, joined the service. And so that was a little bit of you know, you're not quite sure, you think you're working in the dark, but everything in CSIS is very scrutinized. We totally follow the rule of law and that was laid out right in the very beginning. That must be that must be really hard because if you're working with the rule of law, which is, I, I think I agree with that. It, it's, it's important to do, uh, to uphold your own standards, but when you're, it's not an even playing field when you're working internationally with countries that do not have the same um, you know, standards, right? And no, absolutely, so it's not. They have a big advantage in that way because they don't, it's yeah. like, it's a whatever you want to do kind of thing often, right? They do to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, depending I, I on what country. Uh, but it, that backfires too, right? I mean, we, we go in and have the opportunity to speak to members from various communities from around the world who have come to Canada to get away from that kind of abuse of power. Um, and you know, it's, 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 a, it's tragic uh, when you realize that people won't talk to you because they fear you because that's all they have known. And it's, it's that part of you know, working and earning people's trust is, you know, we're very different. We don't, we follow the rule of law. We don't um, engage in that kind of behavior. We're not gonna pull up with a secret truck and throw you in it. We don't, that's not the Canadian way. Um, and you, know, you, you have a much greater appreciation when you realize who we are uh, versus how other nations uh, operate. You know. Yeah, I, I imagine that must be very difficult because how do you convince somebody who's had a life, who, who, who leaves a country because of um, things that Canada fights for, like the democracy, because yeah. lack of democracy, they leave country for whatever reason, for religious, like they can't express their religion, they can't express their sexuality, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and then they come here and often before coming, some many before they either have been have been a victim of uh, the practices of that country, whether they've been put in jails or they have family members who have, you know, they, they've witnessed things and it's hardwired in their brain. So how do you, we know how our brains work. So how, mm -hmm. so when you come or I don't know, somebody in intelligence comes to help to maybe eat support or, you know, so help keep them safe in their country, that how are they going to trust? It's like, no, I'm not mm -hmm. going to trust because, I've always been let down with trust. So that's yep. starting off, you're at a disadvantage there, yep. right?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if, and you know, and then and the whole community is distrustful. So they don't want anybody to even know that they've had a conversation with you. And and you, we understand that. Um, um, but on the other hand, it's very frustrating because they probably have information that would, you're right, help us protect all Canadians, them included. But it's breaking down those barriers, which is why, as I'll go back to my what I had said before, why they wanted to bring in individuals who had the social science degrees who would just talk to people and could talk to people about anything, um, not just into an interrogation mode, which would be a normal police investigation. So it takes it takes a it, you know it takes a lot of patience, and I think uh, you know that is part of um, what I I knew a bit about, understand it to a much greater extent uh, extent now. Um, are you allowed to say you don't have to? Are you allowed to say what your title is right now in CSIS? Oh yeah, yep, yep. I'm uh, the director general of our intelligence assessment branch right now. And what does that look like for the average person? What does that so mean? So what we do is we are very um, integral in what we call the intelligence cycle. So we work very closely with um, government to find out what the government needs to know. Uh, and then we take that and translate that into tasking for our um, intelligence officers. Uh, and then that is transferred out to the regions who engage in the collection. Then they send the reporting back and we analyze, assess it and, and write reports on it um, for government. So that's why we call that the intelligence uh, cycle. Um, we, you know, I have uh, some fabulous analysts. They're excellent at kind of scoping out because I always say, in the service, what we're supposed to be doing is being out in front and finding the threats before they really become huge threats and advising government, oh, this is what we see happening on the horizon. And I have an excellent stable of analysts who do that. They know their areas of expertise and they watch what's happening and are able to then analyze and help direct the intelligence collection as well. So it's uh, it's a fascinating job, actually. It's interesting because I started when I, I'm an, I'm an intelligence officer. I was hired as an intelligence officer. And so when I first came in, my very first posting was in the intelligence assessment branch. Uh, and now I'm at the end of my career and now I'm running the intelligence assessment branch. So it's, there's a full circle for you. <laughs> wow. So yeah, that's a lot. So what, when you first came in to now, you must have see, witnessed a lot of changes. A lot of changes, yes. So when I first joined uh, the service, uh, I was in a class and I, we, they had done the big recruitment and so they were running various classes and I were class 14. I think now they're at like class 82, so it makes me feel really old sometimes. Uh, but when I first uh, joined, I was considered to be a mosaic class because we were actually 50% men and 50% women. And we had um, quite was a diverse that, class. Was that new for them? For that, that time? was relatively new. They were oh, really making amazing. an effort to bring in women. And what year was that? Intelligence officers. So that was back. I joined in January of '92. Good for us. Yeah, it was very good. So it's really interesting when this. Like, as I, I'll give you a little history if that's okay. <laughs> oh, so I would love this, it. I would love it. This, so the service created in '84. Um, automatically. Um, uh, they didn't. They didn't have a building for the service, so we were spread all over town in various uh, various buildings. 
And most of the people that came in were for, were RCMP officers. And they were told you can come in to CSIS. Uh, you have a year. If you decide you don't want to, you just go back to the RCMP. Some went back, many stayed. So all my former bosses were all former RCMP officers. And of course, the service was also created a bit out of a scandal uh, within the security service. And so that's why the McDonald Commission was done and that's why the service was created. That was a big recommendation to have a civilian intelligence agency. Okay, are you allowed to say what the scandal was? Are oh yeah, yeah, that's public that? knowledge. Oh yeah, yeah, um, they were found they were doing some um, illegal activity. They, you know, if you ever look into what happened, they they were um, they burnt down a barn to move a force a, a movement of a um, a meeting. They didn't. They wanted coverage of this meeting, and they they couldn't have it at this one spot, so they burnt the barn down to force coverage. <laughs> so very illegal. Yes, that was <laughs> that was the um, the RCMP. Yes. The RCMP Security Service at the time. Mm -hmm. So based on that, they the uh, Justice McDonald led led the McDonald Commission did a full review of the security service. And at the end, that was just one. That was the big issue. There were other things that were going on, and like they did a illegal break and enters and and stuff like that. So at the end of that, they decided the recommendation was to create CSIS. And so CSIS was created in 84. And there were still some um, deniers up to that point that it would actually be created, and but it was. And and so, you know, you always hear about the arguments between CSIS and the RCMP. I, I, I think that that doesn't exist anymore. It did at one point. It was just, that's the turbulence of any kind of a divorce, right? <laughs> the separation of two agencies. Exactly. I'd like to think we're beyond that now. I don't carry any of that old issues right. I never had because I was never an RCMP officer. Yeah, and um, just for our international listeners, Canada's RCMP is kind of like FBI equivalent, mm -hmm. right? And CSIS is like, um, what would be the American, um, what do they call the American? Well, the FBI also does their, uh, their domestic security intelligence. Okay. And so we're more like um, the Australians, the Australian security intelligence they have a, both a domestic and a foreign agency, uh, or the British, the MI5. MI5, they're domestic. Americans, their their domestic is within the FBI as well. And CSIS and does FBI, of course, but that's their international. Oh, sorry, I spoke over you. No, that's okay. So CSIS and is both international oh. and national. <laughs> we uh, we have the we are what we are considered as a domestic intelligence service, but with the ability to investigate threats overseas that are against our domestic uh, interests. So we do have the, we can run investigations overseas, yes. Does, does that happen often, often? Like? I'm not gonna go into that. Okay, no problem, no problem. <laughs> we, go, we go where the threat is, let's just right. say, and, okay. and we, okay. uh, if, if, right, so. so it there sorry <laughs> no that's okay no i totally respect that i i don't always know i just no, ask perfectly fine. problem in, in 84 it was just getting back to so, what yeah. you wanted to do the so, history I'm sorry. Of I, I, I digress a bit but so no, in 84 we right. created um and then they realized that the service wasn't quite achieving the goals that they wanted it to do so they add they had another individual come in and do another review named oswald destin 
And he, uh, his conclusion at the end was that uh, they needed to be diverse and they needed to bring in people who were not either police officers or military. We had a lot of military come in as well. And that's when they started the big campaign. And by diversity, they meant women and they meant French. So they wanted to increase. It was a very Anglophone. They wanted to bring up the full um, uh, dual uh, linguistic capability, both official languages uh, represented. And so when I was hired, I, uh, we, many of my classmates, I was lucky I spoke French at the time and had reached our French levels, but many of my classmates did not. And so they were actually in French language training because they also wanted people from all across the country. Uh, and to do that, they needed to commit to training these individuals in French because primarily French is in Quebec and Ontario at the most, right? Yeah, and it's our second it's, language. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So it was very important. And we were becoming, of course, a federal government agency. And so we all uh, had to have our uh, bilingual uh, levels, which I, I fully support bilingualism. I think is extremely important. And, um, and so my class was one of the first classes that was really 50-50. So, and that was 92. That's amazing. Yeah, he did his report in 87. So that's when they started their recruitment. And I applied in 89. No, he probably finished the report in 89. That's when they started. I applied in 89. And it took, like I said, two years to get in. I So I started in January 92. Moved from Vancouver in January 92 to Ottawa. It was quite a shock to my system. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Vancouver so beautiful. Not that I haven't lived in the East before, but it was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Um, I've lived in the West and the East, and I, the, the West is, is very beautiful. I mean, coast to coast. But it's no, yes. the West, Vancouver is very different than Vancouver. I mean, sorry, very, Vancouver is very different than Ottawa, right? Like there's no mountains, there's yes. no ocean. Yes. You've got a, you got a canal yes. and, and a river. I know it's beautiful though. Now, I, I when I first moved here in '92 to now, it's a beautiful city. <laughs> it is. I, I've just recently lived there myself. So yeah, yeah. So you moved to Ottawa, and yep, yes. And so I started in our intelligence assessment branch, and I was there for you know for four years, and that was you know, really doing the basic. Um, intelligence assessment work where you use the intelligence, the open information, see if you can forecast a bit what might be happening. Um, yeah, and, but we've come a long ways. At that time, uh, the assessment branch was sort of over here in the service psyche. It wasn't given the same attention that it is now. Uh, and now over the years, we've become a very important part of the national security community. And we're at the table all the time. Back in the beginning, as I said, we came out of a scandal. So we kind of stayed a little bit in the shadows, didn't want any spotlight to put on us. But now we're back to, uh, now we're at the table as we should be. Yeah. Was there, you know how when you join the, I uh, say military or you can't just join, you have to apply and then you have to, pass a level of, um, I guess you do fitness and with the police, they have different tests. Do they have the same thing with, I would imagine with CSIS? Yeah, it, it, uh, not, probably not quite the same mm -hmm. and I don't, and they don't do it anymore. Oh. So when I uh, joined, I had to go and get a full physical 
from the 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 doctor and then submit that. So, but they don't do that anymore for us. Then when you get in, we went we go through a I think it's 16 weeks now. It's changed a bit over time, but a 16 week training course. Uh, and within that training course, they teach you about the service. They teach you about you know basically the requirements of the job. Um, when I took that course, it was kind of funny because we were all university graduates at the time. You had to be a university graduate to join. And um, but the training course was focusing on like Canadian political history and all this kind of stuff that we all had already because we had already been through that. So uh, but they were just learning. Right. They were just designing. What do we do with these new this new type? They knew the first couple of classes they took and trained at Borden uh, and they had them like do parachuting and all this kind of stuff. And then that, okay, well, they don't need to do that anymore. Very James uh, Bond. <laughs> Very James Bond. Yeah, I know. I'm like, nah, they don't need to do that kind of stuff. I remember uh, class one, they actually even watched them blow up a vehicle and stuff, which I think would have been kind of cool to actually see. Uh, but by the time it got to me, class 14, they realized that, yeah, they don't need to do that anymore. And they started to do the training at a facility within Ottawa. Um, and then that, so that's where we, we were for 16 weeks. You got, you really bonded with your class. Like you really did bond with your class. And, and uh, I imagine you I, have to, like, I mean, if you couldn't bond with your class, that would be a big indicator of how you can be out mm -hmm. on the fields, right? You, cause you have to trust yeah. those, like with your life, basically you have to trust them. Yeah. You know, just like yeah. with military, they have to trust the people they're working with. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's and then and that's also your network, mm -hmm. because then when you're uh, disseminated through dispersed through the building, um, everybody was in a different area, but you had a link into every area and it and it created um, it was your full network that let you have even a greater understanding of the of the work that you were engaged on. And then after my probably about three and a half years, then you at that point, we went into what was called the investigator course. And then you were trained on being an investigator and you were put out to to the field. Uh, and we still go through a, a, that process again today. You know what I, I was thinking, like, um, now I'm, I'm going to say a stereotype of a woman, but I just I say that because women are often not all more expressive and um, uh, more open than historically men have been. It's changing. And mm -hmm. I was thinking to be an intelligence officer, I mean, <laughs> how did you stop yourself from going, okay, you can't say anything, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, I know because I would be, like, I would need to talk to people about something. I guess that's where your network would come in. But yes. so, or you slip up accidentally. You talk in your sleep. You know, I don't know. How, how do you manage that? <laughs> yeah, I don't talk in my sleep. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think in, back in the beginning, it was quite interesting because it was a bit of a clash, a clash of cultures, too, because we were told on one hand, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody who you work for. Don't say anything to anybody. It's blah, blah. But then when you're going out and knocking on people's door, there was a period of time where we had to introduce who we were. And sometimes you're knocking, knocking on doors of people not very nice. And you're saying, yes, and I am Sheree Henderson from CSIS. But yet I couldn't tell my family. 
<laughs> so it's that, you know, it's that, it's that balance. And I, and I remember sitting once in a, in my, one of my offices and I was on the phone and my colleague was there and I, and I, I said, yes, this is Shree Henderson from public safety. At that time, it was the Solicitor General. And he looked at me and he said, why didn't you just introduce as where you're from? And I said, well, because they drilled it into our heads not to say who we were for. So you learn over time to find that, to find that, uh, that balance. I always say um, we're a security service, um, not a secret service. Uh, we're spy catchers. Um, and we're, if you, you, it's not that you run out and publicize who you work for. But if people know who you work for, um, then they actually will approach you to ask you questions if they're concerned about security or they see, see, have seen something on a national security um, front. And so you're, you're, in a sense, always having your tentacles out in that front, but you're also a person who can personalize the organization too, because people think, you know, here's CSIS, this big monolith, it's just an organization, but if they meet you and they realize you're a person and this is your beliefs and this is who you are, and you're really no different from them, uh, then that personalizes the organization as well. So it's just, it's finding the right balance. And then, I mean, I unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I have had, I have given a lot of public talks. I have uh, been on parliamentary committees. And so my name's out there. I, but it's, I'm beyond that. For the junior investigators, they are not sharing like I would. And it's a very different environment today. So it's been a learning process, I think, for all of us, the service included, as to how do we manage identity. Yeah. So how did you manage back then when you couldn't share what you did, like with your family, just how the brain works? Like when we have a secret, even if it's for the benefit of everybody, the brain basically creates this feeling of shame almost because the brain can't tell that you're doing it for national security. The brain just knows that secrets are always shameful. Oh, that's interesting. So it could be part of CISA's training. Like how did you deal with it back then, especially when we didn't know a lot about the brain and all that? But um, how did you deal with not telling your family? Like, what did you tell them? I'm working at 7-Eleven. <laughs> well, the worst thing is then they make up stuff. Because <laughs> they want to know where you are. You're gone all the no. morning tonight. Are you having an affair at least? Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, oh, I told my family knew where I, where I, where I worked. And, um, and part of the reasons you kind of have to, because when you're, you go through that, I'm sure you've had to go through your security clearance. Um, and in our security mm. clearance, exactly. I have to list all my family members. Um, and I have to, so, you know, they know, mm. uh, they knew, and I asked them just not to talk about mm. it uh, widely. Although my father is bad. He likes to talk about it all the time. <laughs> I should have interviewed him. <laughs> oh, yeah, my daughter is. She does this. Oh, like, oh, my God, you're my biggest security weakness, Dad. <laughs> we do joke about it. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and I think the, the thing is, too, is it's a, you're, you're maintaining security and secrecy for a greater good, too. It's not that you are keeping secrets for a, for a negative reason. 
because you've done something inappropriate. No, it's nothing like that. You're keeping a secret because it's for the greater good. And if you actually broke the secret, that could cause so many, that could cause somebody's life. So when you look at it in that, that way, you just, there's, there's, there's not even a question of, uh, of uh, where, you would, where you could cross the line. The, re, the repercussions of that could be so severe potentially. Yes, just like what happened in um, the US where I think it was uh, Dick Cheney, he outed two agents in his career. Um, and that was so, I, I just felt like that was so political in some reason, for some reason, yeah. and so selfish. So that's why it's so important that people vote for the right government too. <laughs> so that, that really uphold the, uphold the um, ethics and priorities of, your, yes. of what you believe. And yeah. it's important when people vote that they really look into these people, who are you voting for, what party, what do they believe, what are, what's the history, right? Like those things yeah. are, are more important, in my opinion, than a tax break here or there. Because if you don't, you can have tax breaks all you want, but if you have the government living in your living room, you're not going to, that's, your life sucks. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a whole other mm -hmm. situation. So wow. I agree. So that's it for part one of my interview with Sherry Henderson of CSIS. I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview with Sherry as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. In part two of this episode, Sherry and I talk about how to take practical skills like assessing risk and apply them to help you in your day-to-day -day life. And if you enjoyed today's show, please rate it and review it from whatever platform you're in it helps other people find the show and until we meet again don't let age be your cage you are a shining star